Hi, everyone. This is trumpeter Chris Bode, and you're listening to the Behind the Note podcast with your great host, Chris Davis. You're listening to Behind the Note Podcast, brought to you by a musician for musicians. Here, you will get advice toward a successful music career. This show is made to educate, inspire, motivate, and empower. Now, here is your host, Chris Davis. Hello, welcome to this episode of Behind the Note Podcast, episode number 60. Thank you for pressing play. We're glad to have you today. Today marks the first of three special episodes where we are highlighting the presidential suite by Ted Nash. The presidential suite is an album that will be available September 9th, and you can pre-order it if you are listening to this before September 9th. And of course, after that date, you could buy it anywhere music is sold. And either way, you want to go to tednash.com to get your copy. This is not only about now, the album that's coming out, because we always give you advice for a successful music career. That's what we're about. I want to tell you a really interesting story about how this all went down. Uh, first of all, before I tell you the story, I want to say I agreed to do this. I don't normally promote albums in this fashion uh, where I'm dedicating three episodes to it. But number one, Ted Nash has positively influenced my professional career through his work at Jazz and Lincoln Center Orchestra. And secondly, these three episodes are still very helpful to you. So I hope you enjoy them as much as I enjoyed uh, recording them for you. Uh, so this is how everything happened. I met a woman in Texas uh, while I was attending podcast movement in 2014 this is crazy because little did i know uh the future right at that point i nobody can tell the future uh but i received an email from dory clark now i knew who dory clark was uh only heard of her but then i had an email from dory clark and i'm like what in the world is this why is dory clark writing me of all people how does she even know who i am well, the woman I met in Texas at Podcast Movement recommended me to Dory Clark. And that woman is Fabienne Raphael from Marketing to Crush Your Competitors. And you heard from her right here on Behind the No Podcast. So Dory asked me if I would interview Ted Nash for the presidential suite. And I was like, yeah, of course I will. She didn't know that. I was already a fan and that uh, that I, I just loved his music and his work and his, and his playing and, and him as a person. I had the opportunity to meet him a couple of times. And so I'm like, of course I will. And she, she uh, knew of Behind the Note through that referral from Raphael. So I want to say thank you, Fabienne, for that referral. And it's really cool to know that Behind the Note podcast is becoming known for as a music podcast very thankful for that so we're going to hear from three great people and today is the first we're going to hear from a grammy award-winning composer librettist and stage director and he is also one of the faculty members at the steinhardt school of music 
at New York University. I am happy to present to you today, Mr. Herschel Garfine. Herschel, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Chris, it's wonderful to be here. Now, we want to get to know you a little bit. So will you tell us how do you earn your living as a musician? Well, I earn my living as a, a professor of music composition at New York University. Uh, and then, you know, like many of us, I mean, in terms of the actual income, sort of putting it together however I can. So I happen to do a lot of different things within the field of music. I'm primarily a composer, but um, somehow about, I don't know, 25 years ago, I began working as a writer for myself, writing lyrics for myself. And, uh, and I've had some success as a lyricist for other people, too, and a librettist, which is a lyricist for opera. Um, and in addition to that, I, I do direct for the stage. So a lot of my work, whether it's as a composer or a librettist or a director, is centered around music theater of all types. Oh, wow. That's very interesting. So you have, you have the teaching aspect, you're a composer, and you do stage work, uh, directing. Yes. Yeah, uh, that's right. Wow. Okay, we can't touch on everything, but I want to get to know a little bit, just a little bit about a little of all of these things. So uh, directing, when did that begin for you? Um, it began with uh, my previous big uh, jazz project. You know, my, my project at the moment, which I'm extremely proud of, is, of course, I'm a producer of this work called Presidential Suite by the Ted Nash Big Band. But my last big jazz project was I worked with uh, an old friend of mine and one of the great, great jazz pianists, composers in the world, really, Fred Hirsch. And uh, he did this uh, very ambitious, very uh, personal theater piece called My Coma Dreams. He and I did it together. I really, I sort of conceived of the idea for him, and then I wrote it for him, and I directed productions of it in, um, in New York and San Francisco. We actually had the opportunity to travel to Berlin with this piece. Um, and so that was, uh, that was my first time, you know, really being almost entirely responsible for how a piece got onto stage. That's beautiful. So I want to, wow. <laughs> and I, this is why I do uh, pre-recorded shows. Sometimes I mess yeah, up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no problem. So I want to get to Fred and and how you got to do the uh, the the jazz composing, uh, but I want to still get to know you a little bit better. Sure. Like some of your history. So, what influence did your parents have on your decision to be a musician, if any? Well, not a direct influence, but a huge indirect influence. In that, um, I actually come from a theater family. And so uh, my mom is an actor, my dad is a director, my sister's an actress, and uh, I actually began my sort of adult life um, as an actor. I did a little bit of work in New York, and um, it still influences me a great deal in that I really do think of everything I work on from a dramatic point of view. So uh, even as a producer of of uh, of presidential suite i sort of thought that i could lend a kind of dramatic sensibility to the project as a whole so when did you decide that you want to be a composer so when did you cross the line from doing it to making this the decision this is what i'm going to do with my life and what, what were some of the first steps you took after you made that decision 
Oh, that's a great question. Well, um, I was when I when I uh, finished my undergrad degree, I had applied to some grad schools for uh, composition, classical composition, and I didn't have that much experience, and I didn't have a very impressive resume, honestly. So I got rejected by a lot of places, and I spent a kind of summer in limbo, not knowing what I was really going to do. And a, a good friend of mine at the time had advised me because I I was torn between trying to pursue acting or going full throttle into music composition. And this friend of mine said, you know, if you try one of them, you'll understand how you feel about the other. Mm, that's good. Try, try one wholeheartedly, you know. And I think that's good advice for, for younger people, younger artists who may be torn between two different artistic paths. Try one of them and you'll learn both about that one and you'll learn about the one that you're not doing. Because if you suddenly you start driving yourself mad and you say, wow, I chose to do... X, but I really, my, all the time I'm thinking about Y, well, that'll be an answer for you. I also think that it's, it's really important for artists, musicians in particular, you know, um, I think whatever part of the musical world you inhabit, you have to, you have to come to terms with the huge amount of effort and the very, very low possibility of a let's say a you know a conventional payoff a conventional payoff in other words you know you get to be you know 21 22 23 24 years old in that range you know and a lot of your friends are going to start making a lot more money than you and a lot goes along with that a lot of good things go along with making that kind of money suddenly they can think about you know getting close to someone and thinking of spending their lives with somebody you know if they're if they want to have kids, they can start thinking about having kids. If they, if they can move to a good place, better place than you. All these kinds of things that at that age you're going to find, wait a minute, my choice here of becoming a musician is starting to deny me these things. And it's extremely important to push through that period. Extremely important. And really, honestly, from my, from my point of view, the only way to really push through that is to accept that music may be more important to you than many of those things. Oh, that's very good. I've noticed uh, for me personally, I am, I am married with children. And this is a decision that I made as a teenager that I wanted for my life. And I'm still a musician and I still work locally uh, with, with some success. Um, however, I've seen others that have done greater things than me, in my opinion. Maybe they're more recognized uh, right. They're they're married. They were married, but no longer are married, and their and their families are broken up, and that's discouraging for me. I I want to see people win in their relationships and in their career, and uh, I know they're out there, but I don't know personally too many people uh, that do both well. Well, I think I think you have to you have to know yourself. You really have to know yourself, and not not just who you wish you were, but who you really are. And then you have to communicate that really, really clearly to somebody you're in love with. Very clearly. <laughs> you can't, yes. you know, and that's, that goes for everybody, not musician or not. You can't sort of, you know, you, you can't be false to that person. You have to tell them, okay, this is, you know, my priority, you know. Yes. So we're talking about the presidential suite here, uh, a project that you and Ted Nash worked on. And before we get directly into that, project. I want to get a little bit more history. Um, uh, let's talk about composing. So 
when you're writing a new piece of music, where do you recommend people begin? For example, uh, do you begin at the piano or singing for ideas? Or do you begin by researching on a given topic or anything, anything else that might f- fill in there? How, how would you recommend a person start? I usually would say start with something musical. I, I wouldn't recommend researching on a given topic because you might just end up researching and researching and researching and never putting anything down. You know, it's a very difficult thing to do. Writing music is extremely difficult, and all of us as human beings are very good at avoidance strategies. You know, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so it's going to be. You can get a lot of pleasure out of planning your piece. You know, and. Uh, you know, for example, I make it a, 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 a kind of personal rule of mine not to talk about my pieces much before they're done. Not even with my wife, not even with my kids, like nobody. I just don't talk about them that much because once they're underway, you can get a certain kind of pleasure from talking about them that then makes you feel like, oh, I just got something done on my piece. But you didn't get anything done on your piece. You just had the fun before it's really your turn to have that fun, you had the fun thinking about, oh, it's going to be great and all that. So I, I really, uh, you have to be really disciplined about that. You have to be really disciplined. In terms of where you start, I do think that you can start, you can start anywhere. It's the next step that counts. The next step, which is so crucial, and I stress this all the time to my composition students, is, is trusting in that first idea. Either trusting it or discarding it completely. Either you say, okay, wait a minute, I can do better than that. And so when I was a young composer, I sort of trained myself because nobody, none of my teachers told me to do this, but I sort of trained myself to keep a big notebook of ideas and uh, generating them. However, singing is a great idea, you know, at the piano, at your instrument, whatever it is that, however you generate your ideas. When I had an idea, I would, I would, I would write it down. And then as soon as the idea kind of needed to stop, I wouldn't force it. I just turn the page and then I'd write at the top idea number two and I write another idea and I just keep going, keep going, keep going. And, and, you know, sometimes I'd write like 14 or 15 ideas down before I came upon the one that I said, Oh, wait a minute. Now this one is really going to go somewhere. So, uh, basically, especially at the beginning stages, not getting in your own way is the, is the, is the best advice I can give you. Oh, thank you. That's great advice. And you just reminded me of something. I had a little brain freeze earlier when you were talking about um, going into a career, making the decision. And you just reminded me, I wanted to ask, do you give yourself a time limit before you, before you quit? If you want to, you know, at what point do you say, this is it? I'm I'm not getting anywhere here. Let me change direction. Do you give yourself a time? Oh, I'm very, very stubborn. I'm very, very, very stubborn. I wish. I admire people who who, ha- who are better at that. I mean, it's a kind of discipline to make yourself stop. I mean, look, the far greater trap is that you never get started or you don't yes. put it you don't put in enough time. So of the two, it's far better to just to force yourself and bang your head against the wall if that's what it takes. However, Yes, at a more mature stage, maybe more mature than I'll ever be, it's wise if you can find the time at which you really know, okay, I'm not getting anywhere here. Let me wait till, you know, tomorrow or the next time. But, you know, also as you get older and you have more responsibilities and you do have a family, as I do, as you do, uh, you know, the time is precious. The time yes. is precious. And, um, uh, you know, if you, if you keep putting the time in, then hopefully 
you're not confronted too often with that that awful case of like, oh my god, I could keep going, keep going, keep going, but I just have no time until you know two weeks from now. That's that's kind of the composer's nightmare. So I want to ask you, what makes a great score? When you when you think about the best compositions written, what makes them the best? What do they have in common? It's it, of course it's a very hard question to answer, but you know, increasingly as I get older and I think about this more and more, to me they have a quality of honesty. That's what it comes down to. I mean, when I think of the great classical music of the past or the great jazz music of the past or or present, um, I think there's a there's a quality of you know no BS, you know no posturing, no trying to show off, no doing something because it's uh, you know fancy or impressive, because you really really want to say it that way. Uh, that's a, I guess that's as accurate as I could get about that. I love that. That's perfect advice, because in my opinion, when people attempt to to show off or to be exactly like another, it, it doesn't always work. It rarely works. Actually, I can't think of a time that it has worked and, and uh, sustained. Right. Because you as an individual, that's what's unique. That's what people are attracted to. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. I mean, it's like even if you meet somebody for the first time. You kind of know what's honest about them and what may not be. I mean, you, you can tell that in five seconds, in two seconds, you know. Yes. You, um, and so it's the same way with, with, with hearing a piece of music for the first time. And that means that when you're a composer, you have to credit your audience with that ability, too. They're going to be mm. listening to this thing for the first time. They don't really want my posturing. They don't want <laughs> me showing them how great I am or doing something amazing, you know. It's not what they want. So let's talk about working with other people. Do you work with the same orchestras all the time? Or are there constantly new groups in front of you playing your music? No, I'm, you know, honestly, I, I, I haven't had that kind of a career where I'm always like lining up, you know, one commission after another. And I tend to, uh, um, I tend to only gravitate towards working with a few people who I really admire. And, and because I, you know, I can do a few things myself. I'm not much of a player. There's one thing I come right out and say it. I'm, I, I wish I were, but I, I'm not. So, um, what, what's your it, primary instrument, by the way? It's piano, but I just, I never, I, I came to music fairly late and I never really had that, that youthful experience, which is often like the, the basis for, you know, for a lot of great, for most great instrumentalists, you know? So, you know, I can get by, but I just don't, I don't perform and I, it's just not a strength of mine. So, but in terms of like writing, collaborating with people who are other composers or uh, other players or that sort of thing, you know, I do some of that stuff myself. So I have pretty high standards. So, you know, I mean, one thing was um, my friend Kabir Segal, who's one of the uh, other producers, co-producers, he's the executive producer, I should say, of Presidential Suite. Um, when he first... Uh, introduced me to this project, I was just completely blown away. I mean, I re honestly, within the first minute, I was saying, oh my God, this music is so great. It's so, it's so personal. It's so vivid. It does so many different things. Uh, and so, you know, I, I knew who Ted Nash was. I had heard him play many times. Great, in, in, like, incredible, soulful, you know, imaginative player. But I was only faintly aware of his work as a composer. I got to know more of it. Um, but when I heard this presidential suite, I just thought, wow, I, I would be, it would be an honor for me to be able to work with somebody who, you know, who knows his stuff that well. Kabir introduced you to Ted. Is that mm -hmm. correct? 
Okay. And so when you guys met, he had already began work on presidential suite. You said you heard some of it. I came on board after, you know, in the final stages of, of the project. I mean, final stages of the, of the recording project. So the first thing I heard was the, um, the archival recording from the premiere at jazz at Lincoln center. I, I didn't, I didn't attend that, but I heard that. And then, and Kabir said, Hey, you know, I tell me what you think of this. Um, and would you like to be involved in some way? He had seen a piece of mind. He had seen that Fred Hirsch piece called My Coma Dreams. And I think that probably what might have interested him in my taking part in this was that I'm a big believer in music these days reaching a little bit beyond its, you know, its obvious confines, not being limited to the, the jazz club or the, you know, the concert hall, the recital hall, but reaching beyond to, to really, you know, illuminate important things in the world. My Coma Dreams, which I, which I wrote and directed for Fred Hirsch, was a great example of that. It was the, the story of his six-week uh, induced uh, coma, medically induced coma, um, as a result of symptoms of, of, of AIDS that he, that he was suffering, and, uh, and the whole story of, of the medical treatment that brought him out of that together with these dreams that he remembered when he emerged. And it was so, so much a part of the world, even though it was, it was really a, a big, big suite of uh, jazz compositions, you know, with a, a story tying them together. But um, it was so much a part of the, the real world, the, the, the world beyond music, that it, it's been produced by a number of great um, medical institutions, including the, the uh, Program for Narrative Medicine at Columbia University, uh, the European Society for Intensive Care Medicine. So these, even though it's a big jazz piece, these medical organizations came along and said, wow, this is something that really helps us reflect and will help our members reflect upon uh, the role of, of medicine and caregiving in today's world. And uh, so it was, you know, it was hugely gratifying to, wow. um, to be a part of that. That's a great example of reaching beyond the confines yeah. of the music. I was going to ask, yeah. Yeah, and presidential suite. I we hope will do that even more in a you know in a very different way. But in the in the world of politics and the world of government, uh, we hope that it will be a really inspiring view of of how you know politics is so debased these days. I mean, you know, uh, and Kabir very brilliantly, but not exactly with with full foresight of what this election would be. But he did decide that he would, you know, aim for this presidential year to put it out this election year. So when did, when did this begin? Uh, the actual premiere of the piece, I believe was in 2011. I believe that jazz at Lincoln center premiered that I can, I can check that for you later, but I believe it was in 2011. And, um, and then they began recording about, uh, about two years ago, I came on board a little bit after that. And then, you know, because it's a very big, complicated project, there are also we have these these guest uh, speakers from the worlds of uh, of entertainment and politics, <clears throat> et cetera, who read the speeches that inspired these compositions of Ted's. Um, so it was a very, very big project. It took a long time. A lot of us were responsible for different aspects of, of bringing it together. I want to talk about that. So let's talk about your role. What was your role? Sure. And then also please tell us how did you guys communicate and bring all of this together? Right. Well, you know, Kabir is, um, 
Kabir comes from the world of finance. He's a Grammy-winning uh, producer, uh, but he started off in the world of finance. He's written actually uh, uh, at least one bestseller that I know of on uh, financial matters. <clears throat> so he's an excellent manager. <laughs> yes. You know, ba- band leaders have to be great managers, and and financial people have to be really good managers. You have to tell people what to do, and you have to earn their respect in telling them what to do. So he was the executive producer. I want to interrupt you. Know, you. I'm sorry. Yeah, but just yeah. so the listener knows, uh, I don't know Kabir personally, but we've talked email and email. Mm-hmm. And, and from researching on Google, learned yeah. that he was vice president of Chase, J.P. Morgan Chase. Yeah, so that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, so I just want to give everybody the perspective of... Yeah. of uh, his management ability. <laughs> exactly, exactly. All right, so please continue. You know, because I'm interested in these in 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 music that stretches a little bit beyond just the listening experience into the realms of, you know, real life and 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 real thought. <laughs> I guess I I viewed my job on the project as almost like a director. Almost like somebody who, uh, you know, I'm not the playwright. I'm not the person who, who wrote the thing. And that's Ted Nash. And, you know, he's a genius of a composer. But I viewed my role as making the many meanings of this piece as clear as I could to the audience that will receive it. Because if you think about it, you know, an album has a lot of meanings. It's the physical package that arrives. And, and everything about the packaging and the design has to begin to tell you some of the meanings of the piece inside. Otherwise, you'll never listen to you. You won't be interested, right? And then, um, you know, the, the, the ordering of the movements, the titles of the movements, the, uh, the, the layout of the, of the, um, the there's a, a huge um, uh, accompanying booklet for a very, very in-depth booklet written by Kabir Segal and also by Douglas Brinkley, who's like, you know, presidential historian. He was, he was, um, uh, he was entrusted by Nancy Reagan with editing the letters of Ronald Reagan, and he's the he's the um, the presidential scholar on on uh, CNN, you know. And so he and Kabir wrote this very extensive booklet. But again, I, I have some you know some abilities as a copy editor. Uh, I've been involved in big projects like this before, and I'm a writer, so I was able to go through and sort of be their their copy editor, which was it was a privilege to do. So lots of you know a hundred things here and there. The way I think of it is all of them help to to clarify and and um, and streamline the very many important meanings of this work presidential suite. So what was your goal for the presidential suite? Or I guess it would be Ted's goal. Um, and, And how did you guys work that out? Right. Well, you know, of course, I'm sure that he's told you how. He took the 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 actual sound of these speeches as they were first spoken. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, and he transcribed them, and he uh, he used their pitch and rhythm as the basis for all sorts of musical elements within these movements. Um, and there's a kind of magic to that because the the uh, the intent of the speaker kind of magically comes through in these pieces. It's 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 a, it's wonderful because it's. It's not direct. It's not somebody standing up there and, you know, yelling at you and telling you something. You have to believe it this way. You have to take it this way. Of course, the, the great thing about music is that it, it, it has all these nuances, all these shadings, all these wonderful, you know, uh, entertaining things about it. But at the, at the core, you know, all of these 
are they're all messages by presidents, some American, some foreign, or prime ministers, who used polit- political oratory to inspire people. You know, and we're li- we live a time in which it's just used in the most debased way. You know, at best to score points off of somebody, at best to win a contest. You know, um, and you know, I, I have um, I have. 14-year-old kids have twins who are 14. So that means they're going to be able to vote in the next election in 2020, you know? <clears throat> and, and this election is their kind of coming-of-age consciousness, you know? I mean, we all, we sat around when, uh, for uh, Obama's first two um, inaugurations, and we had a big party at my house, you know, both times. And so they were aware of that. Thank God. It was a great, great, two great moments in American history. Um, but now this time, you know, they're, they're really politically aware and able to make choices and discern things about people. And it's completely dismaying to me as a father that, uh, you know, what's being presented to them. And the fact that, you know, people take, you know, people take a sort of kind of guilty pleasure in following all these this sordid and really awful stuff about this, uh, this presidential campaign. So that it's like, oh, you know, it's like the growing up with the Kardashians or whatever that's called, you know, and, yeah. and that's and that's supposed to be OK. Oh, well, it's fun. You know, he's such a kook and, you know, she's this and then uh, it's like, you know, I, I don't want that. I, I just I want my kids to think that, you know, that actually politics is important. My wife actually works in, in local government, in New York City. You know, it, it's a it's a it's a great calling. And there's it, it, it politics can be used to um, as a kind of path to more greater freedom for people and you know they, they i want them to understand that so this that's what this whole album is about i hope i hope how with that in mind with, with, with the things you just spoke about with that in mind how do you navigate you know to make sure that those emotions and those the the message comes out the way you envisioned it well i'll give you one one small example but i think it you know it's important i, I I worked. Um, I worked quite a bit. I'll give you two examples. I worked quite a bit on on just lending an eye. I won't say that I designed it. We have a fantastic designer. Motema Records is putting out this uh, album, and they have a fantastic uh, graphic designer who did the work. But I, I I lent an eye towards it the way that you would sort of a you know like a theater poster, where you have to you really have to convey in a few images what that is going to be about, you know? So that was, that was one thing. Another thing was that I worked with Ted when I first came on board. The names of his movements were exactly the same as the names of the speeches. Now, some, that's not really possible because those speeches didn't have titles. You, the, the, the president doesn't stand up there and say, now I'm going to give you a speech entitled, and then they tell you, no, there's no such thing. It, it, historians or the public, in the aftermath of having heard the speech, tends to, um, tends to grab onto a significant phrase within the speech and make that into its title, right? So, for example, uh, you know, Kennedy's inaugural is largely known as ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country, right? And that was Ted's original title. And I thought, well, you know, that's fine. But I felt like I encouraged him to try to find ways in which he could make titles that were more, a little bit more musical and a little bit more about his own 
reaction to the speech. That one, he's just shortened to ask not, which I think is kind of cool. There's a, um, you know, it, it's got a, it, it, it's, it's a nice title that seems to be, it's both jazz and it obviously refers to that speech, you know. Um, there's a speech by the first prime minister of India, Nehru, and it was known as, again, just because historians refer to it this way as a tryst with destiny. And I didn't like that title so much. So I said, let's find something else. And it turns out that, that Nehru spoke this to the Indian parliament right at about midnight. It's a very famous historical moment. It was midnight. Uh, and at midnight, the Indian nation was going to become a reality, going to be separated from, from uh, England and it'd be its own country. And so... Um, so he, he, he renamed it Spoken at Midnight, which, again, I think is, you know. It, Much it, better title. Yeah, and it's more <laughs> intriguing. It's more like, oh, that's going to be a, you know, because we have to balance in this, in, this, uh, in this album. It's both very, very smart, and I think it's got a lot of heart, a lot of soul. And I have to, I think part of my job is to balance those two things. So it's engagement with history and it's accuracy and all those things are part of the, the smarts, but... You know, I don't want to read, I don't want to listen to a piece called A Tryst with Destiny. What? A Tryst with Destiny. But if it says it's spoken at midnight, okay, hey, let's, that let is, me hear that. That is actually very interesting. And I probably will listen to that first when I get my <laughs> hands on the album. Good. I'd like yeah. to know what you think. Yeah, I'd like so, to know what you think. So we have the presidential suite written by Ted Nash and produced by Herschel Garfine. Thanks a lot, Herschel. We my really. Pleasure enjoyed you today thank you so this much this was a lot of fun all the best thank you so much for having me on and that's our episode with Herschel Garfine Herschel we appreciate you thank you for sharing with us today and I want to tell you my listener that you can pre-order your copy of the presidential suite right now tednash.com thanks for pressing play and we'll see you in the next episode with Mr. Ted Nash himself go tell your friends God bless you